0: Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking with Leon Furs. Leon is an international consultant, author, and speaker with years of experience as a teacher in the UK and Australia. Leon is currently studying his PhD in the implications of artificial intelligence on writing instruction, and education, and as an English teacher, is very well-placed to advise how recent innovations in AI may affect the subject. We discuss in layman's terms, what is a chatbot? What can it do and what can it not do? Why the likes of Elon Musk have called for a halt on AI development? What Leon would advise schools and departments to consider in terms of the way in which they work with a technology that has certain ethical and environmental impacts, the ways in which AI should and shouldn't be used to aid students' writing, whether chatbots are useful in terms of planning individual lessons or a sequence of learning what this technology does for the likes of coursework and written examinations, and lastly, what this does for certain jobs. How does Leon see the creative, informative, and rhetorical professions evolving in the coming decades? Thanks again to Leon for providing answers to a number of burning questions that I've had ever since ChatGPT came into the educational scene. His writing is an excellent way to ease yourself into the new landscape of technology, and you'll be able to access it via the show notes. If you want to keep, be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and/or follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan HK. So, in layman's terms, what is a chatbot? What can it do, and what can it not
1: do? Yeah. So, I like to. Um use uh, a bit of an iceberg analogy because we love those in education and the the bit above the waterline is the language model. So for chat GPT, that might be GPT 4 and that's really the, the code or the algorithm that processes all of the language below the waterline. We've got this huge data set. Okay. So this is kind of the thing that drives the language model and that data set comes from Wikipedia, Reddit, Twitter, you know, a huge chunk of the internet. So there's this really enormous below the waterline data set that the uh, the language model is processing. Chat GPT or the chatbot is really just like a little flag sitting on top of the iceberg, if you can picture that. Mm. It's uh, a way of training the language model to respond in a particular way. Which in the case of ChatGPT is is like a chatbot. So in dialogue and, you know, it, it will respond in that kind of conversational manner. Mm. So um yeah, the actual chatbot itself is is just like a very, very small component of a much bigger and more complex technology.
0: What what does it have access to, Leon? So you mentioned there like Wikipedia and and Reddit and stuff like that. Is it does it also have access to academic journals? Does it have access to like, the data set? Is it everything that's on the internet or, or not?
1: Not everything. So um, it uses a, a variety of sources for the data set. Uh, one of the biggest kind of sources comes via this thing called the common crawl, which is um, a little bot that crawls across open access parts of the internet. Mm. Um, so the HTML code and the text in particular. Um, so there is a certain amount of academic, um, material in there. So anything that's open access, anything that that bot can crawl, uh, will be in there. Um, and then obviously, like I mentioned, open source, uh, places like Wikipedia, um, the, the public history of things like Twitter threads, all of that is in there. Mm. Um, so it, um, it's by no means the entire internet, um, but it's a fairly significant portion in that data set, which is what gives the language model its power but also is is what creates some of the biggest problems and issues
0: i see um i think for anyone who doesn't know much about these kind of um chatbots and things like that they will at least be aware of people like elon musk and and you know managing directors of google x and things like that who are not necessarily complaining but warning of the the scope of ai and the future of ai and stuff like that but i went away and read a book i've seen you um recommend elsewhere that uh what is it called the atlas of ai um yep. the author of of it escapes me now but she she kind of outlines like a number of different um issues with ai beyond just the kind of dystopian future that everyone seems to leap to so when elon musk and those people are calling for a halt or a stall i suppose on ai development is this due to that dystopian vision of the future or is it more specific to you think to like the environment and ethical toll that such technology requires to run (laughs)
1: um yeah so kate crawford um that atlas of ai book fantastic read and and i would definitely recommend that to any anybody listening um i think that Without being too contentious, there's a little bit of self interest involved when uh, people like Elon Musk start to, you know, doomsay about these technologies and call for a pause. Um, I'm I'm much more interested in listening to what people say from an ethical point of view, um, who who've got a slightly different perspective. So I know that the you know the one of the ex Google um, guys has come out recently um, and spoken against AI but people within Google have been doing that for a long time. Um, there's a really great academic article, um, which is sort of generally referred to as stochastic parrots by, uh, Emily Bender and Tim Nick Gebru, who, who used to work at Google and was actually basically fired over releasing the article. Mm. And she was talking about these kind of ethical concerns, you know, years ago. Um, so the fact that these, um, men mostly like hinton and, and musk are now coming out and kind of prophesying doom um I, I find that a little bit self-interested i think there's an agenda there but there are definitely massive ethical concerns with artificial intelligence that are worth paying attention to
0: mm, that book is excellent actually I, I sort of listened to it as an audio book a couple of weeks ago and like just the stuff around Just and i mean you've spoke to this before but the amount of energy required to power Mm -hmm. ai is incredible you just you don't um and i know we might come on to that later and then also kind of like the lithium needed i think she talks about and also the ethical thing of like um i can't remember the, the the nomenclature that she uses to describe it but something about like categorizing different Mm -hmm. things and 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 ai related to images and all the kind of the racial classifications which are involved it is a fascinating book um the in 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 terms of the environmental and perhaps ethical implications of chatbots what would you advise schools and departments to now be considering in terms of the way in which they use the technology because i think schools are i mean they're struggling just to get their head around what can we use this for? What we should we use it for? And maybe some of the conversation should also include, should we be using it at all in terms of the environmental and and, and ethical implications? So what advice would you give to schools who are having those initial conversations?
1: Yeah, it's, it's really tricky. I mean, it's like any kind of, um, discussion around digital technologies of where you draw the line between, you know, let's adopt these new technologies or let's reject them entirely because they're so ethically problematic. You know, we've seen the same thing with, with, you know, social media and uh, kind of web 2.0 technologies, if you want to call them that. I think there's a a different kind of scale here though, because AI is, is set to just integrate into everything. If you look at what companies like Microsoft are doing. So I think the first thing schools need to do is get aware of the ethical concerns. Um, you know, so I've got a, a bit of a series of blog posts coming out at the moment, which has got a heap of different ethical areas, so bias, discrimination, the human labor of of labeling and categorizing that you just mentioned, the environmental concerns, uh, copyright, privacy, all kinds of things, which are problematic with AI. Schools have got to get across some of that so they know what they're grappling with. And then have serious conversations in school leadership teams about realistic policy that you can put around this. Now we know that students are already using things like ChatGPT. We know that students are maybe using, you know, image generation, things like DALI and mid journey, uh, stable diffusion. We know, um, over here in Australia, there was an episode of Four Corners on the ABC a couple of nights ago, which looked at deep fakes and, um, some of the generative AI problems around, um, deep fakes and that kind of technology. So schools kind of have to tread that really fine line between encouraging teachers to explore how it's going to get used in the classroom, um, in ways which are appropriate and maybe creative and might open up avenues for, for students to learn and balance that with an understanding that there are some serious problems and have those conversations with students, you know, make students aware. Yeah. Okay. ChatGPT is this shiny new thing. Um, But underpinning that is this whole industry, which is really quite problematic.
0: Yeah. yeah. And the blogs that you're talking about there, Leon, where are people best finding that? LinkedIn or your actual website or both?
1: Uh, Either. So I share things on LinkedIn. um, And uh, my website is leonfurs.com. So so the blog there is where I post most of my things. I do occasionally write a LinkedIn article as well. But um, yeah, at the moment, it's... uh, I'm really, really drilling down on, um, helping schools kind of grapple with that policy and, um, ethical side of things. Cause I think we've got to get that right in a way that we didn't really do with, um, with social media and some of those earlier technologies I mentioned, I think those, you know, they caught us by surprise. Um, and the, the narrative around social media was dominated by the organizations that own, them. um. You know, and, and then we flipped into remote learning, particularly here in Australia, where I live, um, and everybody had to adopt Google classroom or Microsoft 365 or teams or those kinds of platforms We're always seeming like we're a bit behind the eight ball in education. And I think this time around, we need to be a little bit more proactive with AI.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, I'll be sure to kind of link to those um kind of places, the website and the LinkedIn stuff on in the notes um for the podcast. But um in one of those blog posts, funnily enough, that you um have have uh, written recently that are read, you kind of delineated the ways in which AI should and shouldn't be used to aid students writing. So this is a bit more kind of English, or maybe not, I suppose. Any 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 subject probably uses writing to a to a certain degree, but would you mind summarizing a few of the ways in which the AI should and shouldn't be used to aid students writing?
1: Yeah. um so yeah, that that post with the sort of AI assessment scale really it came from a conversation with um some some tertiary people at um, Edith Cohen University here in in Western Australia. And it was really around academics grappling with where they're going to draw the line with students. So you're just going to go total ban can't use ChatGPT at all, or are you going to open the floodgates? And I said, you know, it doesn't have to be a black and white. It can be a bit of a sliding scale and to have that conversation with students. So, you know, at one end, we've got no AI at all, and that might be appropriate for knowledge testing, for example, um, probably less so in English, where we don't do a, uh, a great deal of kind of knowledge and recall kind of things. But if there's a subject where facts are needed or a student needs to memorize formulae or ways of doing things we don't need ai to do that that can be done under exam conditions like and really if it's not done under exam conditions it's going to be very hard now to authenticate that chat gpt hasn't done that work for them mm-hmm. but then we can start to introduce chat gpt in different ways so you know maybe it's okay for students to use it for brainstorming mind mapping developing ideas um at the next level maybe it's okay for them to outline work or convert their notes from one form into another maybe tidy up some lecture notes and um, turn them into something a little bit more usable Um, at the next level up from that maybe it's okay for students to use ai for proofreading and editing a bit like they would use grammarly now anyway a lot of them Um, and then at the very far end of the scale ai for everything Um, and i think there's appropriate use cases for that so the one of the examples i give is if a group of students is having a discussion And that discussion is being, um, recorded just in a voice memo on a phone or a computer, Mm -hmm. taking that transcript of the discussion and getting AI to tidy that up and, and produce a written report. Um, the discussion still happened. That's the, you know, that's the key part. The written output at the end is, is much less important. And it's really just a way of, um, tidying up those, those ideas. So, you know, from, from no AI to getting AI to do everything. I think there's there's a bit of wiggle room in assessment tasks.
0: Hmm. I, th- I. Yeah. I think even just kind of that final point that you made. Then I'm currently doing a series of interviews for a master's um, dissertation, and I experimented with that, like taking the transcript that has come from like the voice to text stuff on Google Docs and just putting it in there to tidy it up and stuff. And it is. Yeah, it's 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 not perfect, but it's it's very very close to being perfect. So that that's a really good um, utility. I think having them having like a recorded conversation and asking it to tidy up, um, I think is a great idea. Um, but actually, the case is, and this is, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm an expert because far from it, I've messed around with it. I think everyone in my department has, has certainly put in the typical coursework prompt and seen what it comes out with and it's it's shockingly kind of good um the most common comment that i get from uh, teachers is that well it can create a level six piece of work but not a level eight piece of work etc (laughs) etc but i don't think that necessarily i think we've had like initial forays and initial experiments and i don't think that necessarily we're yet to um fully experiment with what the impl- implications could be in the classroom but i do like that kind of create approach that you've written about the C R E A T E approach what does that acronym stand for and how would an english teacher go about unpacking so, thing
1: so that acronym actually comes from um, tom barrett mm. so he's the, another guy over here who t- is doing just a whole heap of work with with ai and um his create framework i think he put that out way back in February or something like that around, um, around prompt writing. So that's in one of my blog posts about chat GPT strategies. Um, I shared that Tom's running a whole heap of, uh, free webinars and things for teachers and educators, where he's just talking to other teachers, other AI academics and people like that. So, um, definitely check out Tom Barrett He's is right across LinkedIn and you'll, you'll find him very easily. Um. So, so I, can't, I can't I can't, help you with Tom's acronym. Um, but <laughs> okay. what I will say is that just having any kind of uh, a, a consistent approach to how you write prompts is really useful. Um, where I see people making mistakes is they just give a really basic or a really generic prompt. Yeah. So they'll say something like, you know, write an essay on Macbeth and you get a really generic response in return. Um, so one thing that I've learned over time, I guess, experimenting with ChatGPT is using it in a kind of dialogue back and forth, back and forth, Mm. and starting with a really high level outline and then chipping away at it until you get something that's much more refined and much more useful. Um, so you mentioned, you know, it can, it can easily churn out a level six, but can it go higher? Mm. Now, I've been working with people in tertiary who've been getting output that's at a, you know, a postdoctoral level, Mm. um, and we've seen already articles being published in peer reviewed academic journals now that incorporate output from chat gpt mm. so with careful consistent kind of back and forth dialogue with the with the uh, the chatbot you can certainly generate some really really impressive output
0: i think the interesting conversation to have with kids around that is that I assume the person or the, the the colleagues that you're talking about are professors themselves or certainly like experts in the field. I think kids have already, I mean, as is always the case, they've worked out to do that before maybe most of their teachers have. And we had an interesting conversation, a student and I in, in my phone class the other morning, where he was like, oh, you know, this is the end of English, sir, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, well, let's experiment with it. And I gave it something like a prompt in year eight. And then I asked it to refine it for this, like, oh, uh, use this particular sentence structure, use this, increase this, voc- uh, improve this vocabulary, blah, blah, blah. So I chipped away at it. And I was privately, inwardly in my heart, I was quite sort of impressed. I was like, wow, that is very, very good. And he must have seen this on my face. And he was like, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. And I was like, <laughs> it is good, but I know it's good. And I know why it's good. And you don't. <laughs> And that's the difference, and I think that's the thing which maybe you. I think we need to have a conversation with kids about, uh, particularly in 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 certain maybe middle school, uh, well, and and high school, and maybe even college as well. That you need to get to a point where you can wield it to the point where it's 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 creating output that you recognize as being excellent. Because if you lose sight of whether it's good or not, you probably don't have that knowledge base um that you're supposed to kind of get in school in the first place to gauge whether something is appropriate or, or not appropriate or at a certain level. So that was that was a really good conversation. And hopefully something I'm thinking about building into certain units, um, particularly around creativity and essay writing and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. but but anyway, um the um there's 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 been a lot said about like um how to do planning with a chatbot so if you're a teacher of any subject there's been a lot talked about kind of like how you can use it to um quicken the the, the planning process for for teaching but if the chat rot, uh, if the chatbot relies on scraping the extant knowledge of the internet um, or a data set doesn't that mean that a certain more prevalent teaching style would be favored if all the open access stuff that you mentioned earlier you know, if a certain percentage of it favours a, a, a kind of teaching or a teaching style, doesn't that mean that the lesson plan or the sequence of lessons will come back written in that style?
1: Yeah, I think one one big risk with, with these large language models is um, this kind of drift to the middle, um, this kind of homogenising of language or um, you know, and part of that is a problem with that huge data set. It comes from a particular perspective, which is the perspective of the internet. And a lot of what's written on the internet is from a very white Western male point of view. Mm. Um, some of that has sort of bias built into it. Um, there's also outdated teaching methodologies. It depends on what's in there in terms of the, you know, the volume of language, but I've found that when you're, um, Prompting it for lesson plans, for example, it will often come out with outdated pedagogies. So it will come out with things like, oh, you know, make sure that you vary your assignments for visible learners and kinesthetic learners, and you know, and we and we know that that's like a, a learning myth that's yeah. been that's been debunked. You know, we know that students blend learning styles and that there's no such thing as a kinesthetic learner. But because of the volume of writing in the data set about kinesthetic learners, when you ask for a lesson plan, it goes, okay, well, a lesson plan must have some element for a kinesthetic learner, or it will draw on Bloom's taxonomy or Maslow's hierarchy of needs or um, Vygotsky or, you know, something that's quite at lesson plan. And um, you can certainly get it to avoid that by being a bit more conscientious with your prompting. So what I've found is that in order to avoid the generic lesson plans or the generic things you've got to provide heaps of context. Mm. So that goes back to what you the conversation you had with that year eight student where as you as you're driving AI as you're kind of you know in control of that chatbot, you need a certain amount of knowledge to make sure that what you're generating is of a sophisticated and high enough quality. You've got to do the, the quality control on that because there is no quality control built into ChatGPT itself. It will give you outdated information. It will give you fabricated information that it's just cobbled together. You know, we still have to do the quality control at the end of it.
0: Yeah, 100%. Like I've, I've heard someone say, um, oh, you know, it'll give you a basic outline and it's not much, but it'd be great for new teachers. And I sort of looked I thought, This is new teachers are the worst people to be using <laughs> because it's like I, I put it in and it was I can't remember what the text was for and it was lesson one introduce the context of the text and I thought if you try and do an hour on the context of any text you'd be uh, not, not, not necessarily <laughs> torn apart but it'd be so boring it just it hmm. wouldn't be and it's You know, you might do 10 minutes here and there anyway, without getting into the reads of what you should and shouldn't do in in terms of context or any. Yeah, I think that the prompting thing is definitely is is something which I I seem to keep coming back to in terms of like refining and refining and refining. And um, one question that occurred to me then, Leon, was if you ask it, this is such a stupid sounding question, but if you ask it a question in English, is it only scraping a data set in the English language or is it also mine and stuff in French Arabic Chinese or or what
1: yeah but you know what that's a really interesting question um and I'm not sure I have the the exact answer but I know that I mean it does have a lot of other languages in the data set English is the predominant language yeah okay so let's let's start from there if you prompt it in English it will respond in English but if you prompt it in a different language it will generally respond in that language I see. um but I think that I I think that you'd have to deliberately prompt it to, to, uh, to, to draw on some of those other things. That's a, that's a really interesting question, Chris, and I haven't really thought about it very much, which probably shows one of my own blind spots, but, um, it's definitely something worth digging into a bit further. Um, one thing that's, you know, that's kind of connected to the work that I'm doing, um, that's relevant there is, is an idea of around how AI is going to impact our literacy, you know, our reading and writing, which obviously our English teachers are going to be particularly concerned with. And, um, you know, it's worth noting that literacy as we see it, um, in Western education is really a Western concept. you know, that the, there aren't equivalent words in other languages like German and French, for example, to refer to literacy in exactly the way that we mean it. Cause when we talk about literacy and students being literate, we talk about their ability to read and write at a certain level. You know, and we use data like our ecd levels and all of these things to measure literacy but if we were to uh, go into the french or the german education system for example they've got a very different conception of what literacy means so um yeah i think that's a really interesting point what would happen if we're drawing on some of those other uh cultural or sociolinguistic kinds of perspectives where they are like i don't know what that would look like but um. This sounds like a, that's a whole PhD in itself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it just occurred to me because you you get those kind of Dylan William um, comments about how Japanese teachers teach math in intrinsically different from like a, a, a Western or a British, I suppose, teacher. But never mind. Um, the the so I think one big concern, particularly maybe for English teachers, is the impact on. Assessment, coursework, these these types of things. What what do you think this technology does for the likes of coursework and written examination? Do you think there needs to be a shift in approach for some sectors of the education industry?
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and I think that's been something that's been coming for a long time. You know, we're 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 owed um, a a bit of a (laughs) a revolution in how we assess things, just for the sake of the students and the and the teachers and educators. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing is we can't assess knowledge in the same way we have been doing. Um, and we've got to consider why and how we're assessing knowledge. So, you know, what is it important that a student learns? Why is it important that a student learns a certain thing who says like, you know, we can arbitrarily say, you know, you need to know about Macbeth or, um, 1984 or something like that. And then the question becomes, well, why do I need to know that? And then when it comes to assessing whether or not they know that i don't think we can just fall back on comprehension anymore like we maybe have done in in um, in the last few decades we can't just assess a student's ability to churn out an essay let's let's say the essay because that's you know a really common assessment form we've got to say well why is an, an essay the best form of assessment here why are we assessing the student's knowledge or comprehension of this text in particular and is this mode of assessment the most appropriate And I think that, you know, if I'm being idealistic, this technology might shift us away from some of those older paradigms around assessment and towards thinking about, okay, you know, individual students need to learn different things at different parts of their journeys. And we can assess that in a whole raft of different ways. We can do things orally, we can do things through practical components. We can do things through students constructing texts and other artifacts, or at some time we could do an we could do an essay if that's the most appropriate thing
0: Mm. yeah i think the i wonder whether some kind of countries and some exam boards feel a little bit vindicated in in the decisions they've made i know that the uk a while ago made the decision to completely move away from coursework and for anyone who still does kind of igcse which is obviously kind of linked to the uk but still has coursework components to it there's now a big i mean We've got a massive industry in Hong Kong around private tutors. And to me, private tutors are just kind of the analog version of ChatGPT. So I feel like a lot of private tutors are going to be out of a job soon, but it kind of has maybe exacerbated or brought to the fore the reality of the fact that these kids are not demonstrating their knowledge in, in a way which is kind of reliable or even useful um in in some ways and and the assessment thing i think yeah i think and i think i think coming back to that the ib is probably rubbing its hands together in terms of being like well we've advocated for a change in assessment for a long time and they're constantly talking about that at the hague and they're probably very well placed to to build on the whole chat gpt thing but yeah we'll we'll wait and see um the the last question i've got for you is um what does this do for certain jobs and i know this is a very hard question to answer but i mean typically we might ask students in english to reimagine themselves as journalists or storytellers Mm. poets speech makers and the like um how do you see the creative informative rhetorical professions evolving in the coming decades what if, if, you, if we think about like, yeah, journalists, writers, speech makers, what's going to become automated? What's going to, who who's going to keep their job? What, how is it going to be um, different? Do you think in the next 10,
1: 20 years? I think it will obviously be different, necessarily different um, and not necessarily different in a bad way. I, yeah. I don't think that, you know, AI is not going to kill human creativity. Um, it, it's going to reshape the way certain people do certain jobs. We are going to see a lot of fake news and a lot of, um, you know, bot generated content. We, we've seen that for years. It's just Mm going to escalate massively, you know, on the run up to next year's us election, for example, this is going to be phenomenal. How much deep fake, how much, um, fake text, how many bots we're going to see come across Twitter and other social media platforms. I think, I don't think we're prepared for that. Um, so, you know, we're probably going to see a whole new industry spring up around the prevention of those things. But I, I did a, another podcast, um, the other day with a student from RMIT university here in, um, in Victoria, um, who's studying journalism. And I said, so what, you know, what do you think about your, the future of your career? And, and we spoke a little bit about how like long form, creative nonfiction journalism is going to become really important and really yeah. powerful because it's got that human aspect to it. Yeah, And, um, you know, AI can do a pretty good job at the moment of pr- pretending or, you know, producing output, which is human-like, but doesn't have lived experience. It doesn't have the ability to go into communities and do that really, you know, in-depth investigative long-form journalism. So I think there's still a place for that. There's still a place for the visual and, 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 um, and other arts because they draw on human experience and i think that people will always create you know i i don't think those creative i think i I think it's innate in human nature that that creativity exists um i think that people will find ways to use these tools obviously just like they did with digital photography and word processing and any other kind of comparison you want to throw at it um so you know in, in terms of Uh, industry in terms of economic impact there'll be there'll be a huge shift a huge impact but i think that we can maybe separate out creativity and economics a little bit more clearly and um i don't think the creative will be uh will be as as impacted as maybe some of the media coverage is suggesting will be
0: Mm, yeah, that that's certainly, I'm not, I'm clearly not as well across it as you are, but I, I do feel like that's the message that's coming back quite a lot. This idea that um it it can't, not to say it can't do creativity. I think creativity is an incredibly kind of like abstract word, but I think mm. it's, yeah, that lived experience is such a good way of looking at it. It can give you the sum total of kind of loads of different people's experiences, but there is just still a bit of a synthetic feel about it. so like can it can it generate news reports hundred percent like can it tell me what happened between Real Madrid and Man City last night quicker than any reporter could? yeah, of course it could. can it give you the lived experience of being in the stadium watching it? I don't know yeah, maybe not yet. Maybe it will do one day, but I do yeah that long-form journalism thing is something which is is certainly kind of yeah fills me with. Hope that my subject, my <laughs> job, isn't completely, um, you know, uh, completely sort of useless yet. But yeah, right. um, la- the only thing that remains for me to say, Leonis, thank you so much for giving up your time today. Um, I think you are. I was. I was really keen to speak to someone about this for a long, not for a long time, because it's kind of snuck up on us in the last six months, I suppose. But the last few weeks and stuff, and and I think you've been really prolific on. LinkedIn and and, and um, a number of different, I've generally kind of found you on LinkedIn, but on a number of different channels as well. And thank you for all the excellent output that you're doing and and, and good luck to you. You're doing some fantastic work.
1: All right. Thank you very much. And thanks for the invitation. That was a, a great chat. A lot of fun.